You're listening to a Corridor Business Journal podcast. I'm Nate Kading, and this is Real Success. This is the Corridor Business Journal podcast, where we explore the life and careers of the Corridor's most influential business leaders. Iowa City native Drew Odding has emerged as a Silicon Valley venture capitalist who can see around corners. Odding has a nose for business opportunities that can improve people's lives. His investments are a case study on how to double down on strengths to get results. I sit down and talk to Drew about his whirlwind path to success before the age of 30, an eye-opening foray into opportunity hunting that involved a stint in Mongolia, and investing lessons as a Bill and Melinda Gates scholarship recipient. Odding also shares the backstory of his nonprofit idea that was just featured in the Wall Street Journal. With Operation Mask, he and his partners used his Iowa connections and their venture capital network to procure PPE and medical supplies from around the world, helping U.S. health organizations in a critical time of need during the COVID crisis. Here, Drew's forecast on the next three trends to look out for, and of course, his answers to my real success rapid-fire questions. I learned a lot, and I think you will too. Stay tuned. This episode of Real Success with Nate Kading is brought to you by Midwest One Bank. Midwest One Bank is the proud partner for doers and entrepreneurs in the corridor and beyond. As an SBA preferred lender, our team is ready to help you reach your business goals. It's empowered money management. It's Midwest One Bank, member FDIC. Drew, thanks so much for taking the time, especially uh, here in the middle of in unprecedented times for all of us in, in business and personal lives and just the world in general in the middle of the, the COVID-19 crisis here. And thank you so much for joining us from, from California. But um, before we get into the amazing work that you're doing right now uh, with Operation Masks, responding to the need for um, protection protection masks around the, around the country and around the world, really, I uh, want to just first dive into a little bit about your background being an Iowa City native and, and what led you out to your work uh, in venture capital out in California. Talk a bit about um, your upbringing here, here in Iowa City and how that's kind of helped shape your, your outlook on business and, and investing. Yeah, well, Nate, thanks a lot for having me. I, I appreciate it. It's, it's great to get to do this. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in Iowa City and uh, I, I lived most of my life there, um, right there on, on right next to campus uh, in Mayville Heights, close to Carver Hawkeye and, 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 um, and Kinnick stadium, um, grew up a fan of yours. So it's, uh, it's great to be on your show. Way, way back uh, when, way back when, <laughs> way back when, exactly. Um, and I, I went to uh, West high school there and, um, and I think, I think growing up in Iowa city had a, a kind of a huge uh, bearing on, on, you know, w- where I am today. Um, I w- the reason I was in Iowa city is my parents were both physicians at the university of Iowa. And, uh, and I think the education that, you know, I got, you know, Iowa city was, was pretty tremendous. And at the same time being a very normal place to grow up, uh, with great people and people who work hard and, and have, uh, you know, a strong kind of desire to, to push things forward. Um, but I went out to California went to college there. I studied math and economics at a school called Claremont McKenna. I originally went there to play golf. Um, and got really excited by entrepreneurship and investing. And I was very fortunate early on, um, basically right out of college, to get introduced to my current business partner, uh, who, who is a technology entrepreneur, a guy named Joe Lonsdale. Uh, and I got introduced to him right out of college and kind of started working for him basically as his kind of personal assistant. 
really. I uh, called it a chief of staff, which is probably an inflated title. Uh, when he was the CEO of a, <laughs> of a business that he had started called Adapar, which was a wealth management technology company. Uh, and, you know, that kind of was my start. And we've, we've now worked together ever since and built up APC, which is a venture capital business, manages about three and a half billion dollars, uh, primarily focused on investing um, in healthcare, logistics, financial services, government technologies, basically, you know, kind of boring, um, you know, more B2B enterprise type areas, but applying modern software to those areas. That's great. Just to backtrack a little bit, when you were in Iowa City prior to going out to Claremont McKenna, was there the entrepreneurial blood flowing through your veins then in business? Or was it some, something you really fell in love with once you got out to, to California? Well, I, I probably wouldn't describe it that way when I was growing up, but kind of in retrospect, and I think contrasting the way that I grew up with, maybe the way that, um, you know, other, other folks I know have, you know, the, I think the biggest thing is just that, you know, there's a lot more latitude, a lot more de- degrees of freedom, I think, uh, growing up in Iowa City, at least when I was growing up there. I'm sure it is still today, you know, we would kind of roam around as kids, you know, we would set up our own football games and, you know, sort of de facto sports leagues and kind of, right. you know, wander the city. Right. And I think that's so different than what I see in, in, you know, New York or San Francisco or LA where, you know, everything is really scheduled and very, um, you know, very kind of controlled by parents. So I think, and I think that I, I think that was a big part of it. And I think, secondly, I was, I became obsessed with investing. Um, there was a, uh, early on, even, even as a high school, yeah, at like 14, I became obsessed with it. Um, probably just because I take, took this AP economics class at, at West high where the professor was great. Um, so you have like a, you folks hit you like a little e-trade account just buying stocks. Yeah. What, were, what were some of your, your, uh, great early investments? <laughs> well, I don't think any of them were that great, but it would, <laughs> Yeah, tough they, lessons they, learned, right? Yeah, they basically let they let me, you know, kind of set up an account. I think in my dad's name or something, uh, and you know, just kind of trade and look at penny stocks and all this kind of stuff. And I think my mom, you know, told me to buy Visa um, when it went public, and that's. I mean, I wish I would have held on to that. It was probably the you know best investment. But you know, so I just I got to play around with a lot of stuff. And my parents were really supportive of that um both you know just in terms of letting me kind of mess around and and sure. kind of study what I was interested in um and also you know obviously providing me you know a lot of um educational resources and stuff so i think i was but i wouldn't if you had asked me then i, I you know i wasn't like setting up a lemonade stand or or anything like that um right. it was mostly just i was given a lot of uh, latitude to explore what i was interested in Sure. I haven't started investing at an early age and now part of a, you know, billion dollar plus venture capital firm out in California. How would you describe your philosophy or fundamental principles or outlook worldview on investing? What, what kind of shapes your, your overall attitude towards it? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I'm a, I have a very biased view because I'm a venture capitalist, which is very different than other types of investing, but, but fundamentally I do think uh, I view the world um, you know, through an optimistic lens. And uh, that's maybe, you know, maybe the last few weeks that that's not a very profitable way to view the world. Um, but, but I do think right. long-term, uh, I have a very strong belief that there's a gravitational pull towards, um, things getting better, things getting more efficient, 
costs coming down, um, products that were once unbelievably difficult and exclusive um, becoming uh, more democratized. Sure. And, and that really is an under, underlying kind of, um, I think, driver of both the stuff that we do on the uh, investing side, but also, you know, we, we build three or four companies a year as well. Um, and so still view the world as entrepreneurs. And I think if you have that mentality and you believe that things generally are, there's generally going to be progress and that the daily lives of people will generally get better. And then you start trying to trace, you know, you, and you put yourself five or 10 years in the future and you, you try to, you know, put yourself on the top of the hill and, and then look down it and say, okay, how did, you know, how did the world evolve to get here? That tends right. to be, I think, the, the way that I view the world. There's other people who invest who make a lot of money with different views, but, but I think uh, I'm probably not smart enough or detail-oriented enough to, to try to, like, pick apart, um, you know, which companies are going to fail and things like that. What I'm, what I'm always looking at is where, where will the world be, what technologies or um, incentive structures uh, are new that will enable that world to potentially get there? Like what, what could happen now that couldn't have happened five or 10 years ago, uh, sure. that, that aligns with that view of where the world, um, might be in, you know, in a decade. That's great. You're relatively young in your industry as well. Talk a bit about how you got your start. I mean, I think you helped found the firm, right? At like age 24, not far out of college. Talk a bit about, that's given you a unique perspective on investing and how you found your place so early on in the industry. Yeah, I got really lucky. So um, I got, I mean, I've been, I've been lucky my, my whole life, I would say. Um, and I, you know, starting from where I grew up and the parents I had, um, the siblings I had, you know, but, but in college, I was very fortunate to have a scholarship through a group called um, Cascade, which is the, the family office, the investment arm of the Bill and Melinda Gates uh, kind of universe. And they I, I learned a lot about fundamental, um, you know, valuation and thinking about the world, you know, in a very Buffett style way. And then mm -hmm. I also spent some time in Mongolia, um, which is like the polar opposite working for a, a, a guy, very wild west kind of style, um, entrepreneur who, um, you know, and I learned that, you know, he was an investor and that he put capital to work but he was also an entrepreneur in that he was constantly thinking about building companies or, or changing his businesses. And he was, sure. he was, you know, much more like a, a, a operator. And so I had these weird sort of this weird dichotomy between a very fundamental investor, you know, value investing framework. And I had this like wild west entrepreneurial thing. So I, I always kind of wanted, I like those two experiences, like I want to do this something like in the middle. And I just got so lucky that a friend of mine from college, a guy named Clint Paulus, um, made an introduction to my business partner, Joe. And Joe wanted, uh, you know, at the time he had, he had started a company called Palantir, which is probably the, the, the largest privately held enterprise yeah. software company today. It's about a, um, you know, one and a half, $2 billion revenue company. And he had started that in his, in his early 20s uh, after being at PayPal. Um, and he was a computer science, uh, you know, kind of legend and, and then moved over on the business side and he wanted a chief of staff, someone to come and just run hard and, um, help him with anything he needed. That's awesome. And, yeah. and it was, was like, <laughs> and it was me and, you know, he said, well, you know, I, and I think that's a big thing is like, you don't have very much to lose. And when you're, you know, 21 and 
you know, you don't like, you can go work, you can go do that. And I have a lot of people say, Oh, you know, Oh, you, you know, I could have gone maybe worked at an investment bank or something. Oh, well, you, you know, you made, that was a big risk. And at the time it, it was kind of a no brainer to work for someone who was young. He was, you know, just turned 30 and was, you know, had done so much when he was young. And I really credit him a lot with, um, you know, being able to, you know, done what I've done so far because he just, there was no levels, there was no hierarchy, there was no bureaucracy. You know, I was given as much as I could take on and I was taught and really encouraged to, you know, to constantly, you know, bring in other people. I mean, I think what I learned most from Joe early on was just give tons of responsibility and credit to other people. And, you know, and in exchange, like just have very high standards for performance. And if you do that and you build a culture of that, you know, over time, you get huge amounts of leverage because you get all these incredibly smart people working for you and, um, and doing way better than you could ever do. And I think that's, what's really kind of propelled us, um, you know, so far in, in building our investing businesses and also building, um, you know, the, the, the other companies we built along the way. What was it like sitting at the board table and looking across and there's probably people two, three times your senior, were you, were you getting some weird, weird looks at times? Like what's this kid in his mid twenties doing here? The short answer is, yeah. I mean, you do get that. What I would say is we're really lucky in Silicon Valley that there's none of that in Silicon Valley, right? I mean, Silicon Valley is almost too much in the opposite direction where, um, you know, it is just the, the bias is just very much towards young, you know, young, pretty much like overly ambitious, overly confident, um, you know, folks who probably have a, a big spike in one area, whether that's, you know, product or engineering or, you know, whatever. And, um, and so I think if, when you come from Silicon Valley, um, you know, but when you're here, it, there's, there's not that much of that. And then when you, when you leave, you know, you're kind of immediately going to, you kind of fit the, the, the stereotype, I guess. So, you know, you kind of fit into whatever people's predisposed views. If they're, if they're really interested in that and they're leaning in on it, they almost like it more because it's sort of like fitting their view of the right. world. And if they think that Silicon Valley is silly and, you know, filled with BS, then they'll immediately, then you have, then you're going to have to, you know, you kind of have to walk towards that. Um, what I've found is that the key thing is just when you're in situations like that, there's so much you can learn from the, from the other person mm-hmm. um, that it's mostly around just, just, you know, most people that you would want to do business with. Uh, if you pr- approach it that way, that you are, um, you know, that you want to, you want to learn from them and then maybe you can help them, but mostly you want to learn from them. Uh, you know, it, it's a good way to kind of beat back any sort of predisposed, um, you know, notions about people. Sure. Can you talk a bit about Iowa's role or specifically Iowa City, Cedar Rapids, these, you know, tertiary, small, mid markets, what role they can play in the next decades plus in the venture capital world and the startup world? I know there's been, a, you know, obviously, you know, the, the epicenter is out in Silicon Valley and you've got some other hot spots, but as you look across the United States, what, how, how can Iowa city and, and the Cedar Rapids of the world, how can they play in this game? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we, we have an office in San Francisco and an office in New York. Um, and uh, you know, the majority of our businesses are, are based kind of, you know, in coastal cities, but I would say that we have 
no, we were agnostic. We want to invest in the best people and the best technologies. Um, what I would say is that, you know, we, I spent all 2019 visiting other cities. Um, you know, the obvious ones like, you know, Austin, we have a lot of business in, um, Seattle, you know, is, is, it's kind of funny how it's overlooked because the two most valuable technology companies in the world are, are based there. Um, but, but also, you know, less obvious ones like, um, you know, like, uh, you know, Des Moines and Iowa City, City Rapids. What I would say is the role I, I view for, for cities that are both smaller in population, but also maybe less um, naturally oriented towards technology or, or entrepreneurship economies, the opportunity is in finding a domain and focusing deeply on it. So um, the, the reality is for, for Iowa, right? We have very strong um, healthcare. Uh, the University of Iowa uh, has very strong research in some, some areas of great sort of excitement right now in gene uh, and cell therapies uh, and synthetic biology. Um, there's incredible research happening. Uh, and, and already technologies from the University of Iowa have um, been a part of some really big companies Sure. Uh, Bet, Dr. Bev Davidson, who was uh, one of the uh, uh, one of my best friends growing up, mother, is um, like turns out she, you know she she's, she co-founded a company called Spark Therapeutics, which is you know a, a huge, uh, hugely important company in in the gene mm -hmm. and cell therapy area that was bought for about five billion dollars. And there's you know multiple other technologies that have gone on to be really important. And I think so doubling down in an area of strength, obviously. Agriculture is, a, you know, a hugely important area in Iowa that we have huge uh, both influence and also expertise in. And there hasn't really been a lot of successful ag tech companies built in Silicon Valley or in New York. And it's not a surprise. People don't really know much about agriculture, you know, outside of, you know, maybe central California. Um, sure. And so I think doubling down on areas like that uh, is, is, um, is, the, is the opportunity. I think the potential the detriment is trying to do everything that Silicon Valley does um, overnight, Absolutely. right? Yeah. And, and, and I do think if you, while it's great to have entrepreneurship of all kinds happen in a, if you're, if you're trying to advance an area, focusing on a, a couple, you know, domains tends to be, you just get to, you get to have a lot more return and a lot more compounding on that. Right. Um, so my advice has always been, you know, you know, try to put resources around one or two areas, the capital will come. Um, you know, capital will always find the best stuff. Might be a little bit of friction, but, you know, it's not, it's not like, you know, it's not like it's a desert. No one will, you know, there's already lots of venture capital funds visiting the University of Iowa to look at, you know, gene, gene and cell therapies. It's about creating an ecosystem that's, that supports those things and promotes those things. And then the last part being, a local ecosystem of capital. So, um, you know, everyone wants to have the economic engine of a Silicon Valley, uh, you know, in, in their, in their town. Um, but very few business people actually ever put risk capital towards, towards, uh, these types of businesses. And right. so every, I'm always asked, like, I, you know, I'll be asked in other cities, well, how, you know, how, how can we do this? You know, how can we get this? We have all these, these great companies here. And I always ask them how many of the executives in the room 
right angel investments into companies that, that have no revenue and they're not asking for egregious terms. Um, because in Silicon Valley, you make, you can make a million bucks and you, everyone's going to go and write a bunch of, they're going to take that and write a bunch of angel checks with it. I mean, I'm not saying that's a good financial <laughs> strategy, but it, but it's what happens. The cultural currency is being involved in other people's businesses and helping them. And if they fail, not, you know, suing them or coming after me and this other stuff, but just trying to back their next thing. And that, right. that culture of supporting entrepreneurship is probably the most unique thing about, um, you know, about Silicon Valley. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think you're, you're starting to see some early signs of, uh, yeah, you're doubling down, that. doubling down in areas of strengths. I mean, you're seeing that out of, from the state level in the IEDA and the university of Iowa. And there's some, some movements around here locally with Eric Engelman and his group with a, a startup fund. And we're endeavoring to pull something off uh, on a smaller level here in the Iowa city area as well. So yeah, you, you hit on an, uh, a great point there in terms of identifying what you're good at and, and, uh, and doubling down on it just to pivot a little bit, um, here towards some more, uh, timely conversation around the, the COVID crisis. I, I want to get to talking about operation masks and how that came to be, but I guess one, one question to kind of, to, to tee that up a little bit is, as you look out into industry and, and business, and this is, these are early times and this is a, a quick take, but how, how do you think, you know, maybe it's a specific industry or just business or the world in general will have changed? I mean, this is all just two or three weeks new, but we're, I think everybody can agree that uh, there's some real long-term change that's going to come from what we're all going through right now with this healthcare crisis and what's going to be an economic crisis as well. Do you have any early, early thoughts about, um, the long-term impact that COVID-19 is going to have on, on the world. Yeah. I mean, and again, this is, this is, who knows if this is worth anything. Cause it's, this is, this is one of the more unprecedented, um, I think things that's ever happened. Um, and, and people much, much smarter than me you know, have told me that they don't know what's going to happen. So, but, but my take on it is generally there's been an acceleration of trends, uh, like five to 10 years of the trend has happened in the last two or three weeks or, or maybe the last month. And um, the ones that are obvious are the uh, one, the, the use and prevalence of um, video conferencing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that, that, you know, that, that also applies to healthcare through telehealth. Um, the, the unbelievable shift in spend from offline or brick and mortar businesses to online or delivery businesses. Um, and then the, the revealing of how our lack of manufacturing and uh, an ability to produce products can, can cascade through our economy. And I think those are, you know, the, those are kind of the, the things that have stuck out to me. I think if you, um, if you think about from the positive side, identify all the things about this crisis, all the, the aspects of being quarantined that are, that feel positive. Um, you know, sure. and you know, maybe, you know, it's nice to just have instead of maybe, maybe, maybe folks like, you know, having their groceries delivered instead of going to the store, or maybe you really like not having to get on a plane to go to a meeting and you can just, Right. It's socially yeah. acceptable to just hop on a video conference. That's um, a great way of looking at it. Yeah. What are these yeah. things now that we're like, geez, I don't, I don't miss that yeah. at all. Like, you know, exactly. Are, and, and then just imagine like how many other people are in that camp 
And some of the, and those are the things that are going to persist. And then imagine the most annoying things you can't do. And those things, you know, those things will probably go back to normal. And that's a really simplistic way to view it. But that's what, that's what we've been trying to do is, um, you know, just every day kind of write down the thoughts of like, oh, this was really great. Actually, this was a, this was a good thing. Uh, and, the, and then obviously, conversely, the, the stuff that, you know, really looking forward to get back to, um, you know, and, and then the last part is probably, you know, related to what we've been working on the last few weeks, but that is, it's just, there's a, there's a clear reality that the way, uh, you know, that, that large parts of our economy um, on the production side have been, have been outsourced. And I do think that that will probably change both for economic reasons, but also probably for political, political reasons. Sure. That's, that's great insight. And uh, talk a bit about the, the Operation Mass. You guys had an amazing piece in the Wall Street Journal that talked about you and some, some buddies really <laughs> kind of sprung to action really quick, right? And, uh, and met the call for, for masks around the United States and able to source them and price them and created this sort of marketplace, so to speak, digitally. Talk a bit about the origin story there, some of the, the learnings that you've had as you guys have, have put that together and really a, amazing speed. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a, it's been a crazy experience. I mean, basically, you know, we are not experts at all in, um, you know, procure hospital procurement or PPE or any of this stuff. But what happened was through a few of our businesses that, um, man, that, that have very close relationships with manufacturers in China and, and throughout Southeast Asia, um, we started just getting emails with, Hey, you know, here are some masks. I saw on CNN that people don't have masks, but this person that I used to be buying sunglasses from, uh, you know, is now manufacturing these masks. Um, can, you know, you all know hospitals, can you reach out? And, um, and yeah, I, I kind of, this was three, three weeks ago. I, you know, I thought that there's no way that, that this is a problem. There's so much existing infrastructure for this huge companies around this you know, this probably isn't an issue, but I, but I had had a conversation with my, my mother, who was a pediatrician at the University of Iowa about how they, you know, they were concerned about having enough access. And so I said, well, you know, um, maybe there is an issue. So I think I sent the first thing over, um, to Zach Walls actually. Um, yeah. And, uh, and Local I thought state he would, senator. Yep. yeah, yeah, I was state Senator who I thought would have a good vantage point on whether this was an issue or not. And he immediately said, it's a big issue. Um, you know, he connected me to a bunch of other people in other states, kind of validated it was a big issue. Um, and, and then we, at the same time, another friend of ours who's uh, very well connected in, in China with entrepreneurs over there, we, we kind of realized we're working on the same thing. So we teamed up and we set up a nonprofit called Operation Masks. Um, and really the idea was, can we help find stuff uh, over in China or elsewhere and get it connected with hospitals or cities or communities that need it here in the U.S.? And, um, you know, we quickly realized that it's a, it's a really crazy world. It's a, it's a world where the production um, is, is maybe the least complicated part. There's, there's a series of distributors and wholesalers and, uh, you know, bet, yeah. middlemen and trade companies that kind of sit in between, um, you know, the, the masks where they're manufactured and hospitals here in the U.S. And the adding complexity is that unlike 
almost every other country, the United States doesn't centrally procure these products. So the University of Iowa is responsible for buying these the same way that a state or a city or, you know, is responsible. So you have hundreds or thousands of buyers competing against States. each other. Yeah. This yeah. Competing against each other, but also competing against federal governments mm. and the federal governments have obviously much more money. And uh, to some extent, they, they care less about payment terms and other things like that because, you know, they're, they are there on the ground. They're able to buy in bulk. They're able to do their vetting very quickly. Um, and, and if you imagine, you know, a, you know, the Italian or German government sending, you know, some a SWAT team in basically with a ton of cash and a military plane to do their diligence quickly and pay on the spot and take stuff out. How is the University of Iowa, you know, supposed to, you know, do that? And then imagine, imagine a much smaller hospital or imagine, right. you know, just a, you know, one nursing home. And so that's crazy. Um, that's the that's the complexity of of the system. Now, over the last week or two, FEMA has you know really stepped up and started figuring out how they can how they can help. But um, you know, it's a, it's a really complex problem, and and we tried to just chip away a very very small part of it and just connect. You know, regardless of where we came from, if we thought, hey, you know, maybe this person in China, you know, is a legitimate manufacturer. Uh, or, you know, maybe there's a broker in the U.S. And all we tried to do was, you know, we're not experts on betting. We don't have people on the ground. All we're trying to do is just give a little bit of a leg up and make a little bit, you know, decrease the workload of the procurement folks. And so, you know, we're obviously a nonprofit, have zero financial interest in any of this. It's mostly just, can we use our network and our time and really, you know, my, you know, our hard-headedness as it terms of dealing with, uh, with uh, just a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of noise to try and increase the chances that a hospital could find, you know, some, some real supply. And, um, and that's kind of what we've been working on uh, for the last few weeks. That's an amazing story. How many uh, masks or medical supplies have you guys helped procure? Do you guys keep a tally on how much you know, you're helping connect with? You know, it's, it's, it's funny because we don't really unless the, unless a hospital follows up with us and tells us, Hey, you know, this actually showed up. Um, we're mostly just making handoffs. And so, you know, we probably, we think it's in probably the order of, you know, high hundreds of thousands or, or kind of, you know, low millions, um, on the, on the hospital, on the hospital and city and state side. Um, obviously on the FEMA side, it's, you know, we've, we've helped, we've been trying playing a small part in trying to help FEMA find, you know, much larger suppliers, um, but, uh, you know, but it's, yeah, it's our primary, our primary goal is not necessarily even to, to find that out. Although like, I'm really excited, you know, six months from now to kind of follow up and see, um, but these procurement folks are super busy and what we're trying to do is just give them enough, uh, you know, just cut down some piece of their workload. Um, right. and so I'm not, I'm not pestering them too much. So I'm fascinated by you probably had this really unique insight in that you said FEMA and all these different supply chains and China and hospitals and, and states. What, what did you learn about how these different organizations and entities manage through crisis? Have there been any things that have jumped out? Is there, are there lists of things not to do, things of best practices? What have you learned about crisis management through this process? 
I think it's, I think the most telling thing is just how quickly a well-functioning supply chain uh, can change and how the purchasing and procurement patterns that work 99.9% of the time can dramatically break down. Hmm. I mean, procurement, especially of, you know, medical equipment sort of by default needs to be a, a really well, you know, well-designed and, and, you know, deliberate thing. Uh, and, and that makes a lot of sense, but the reality is when something like this happens, uh, you need to be, it's much more like an entrepreneurial market. It's much more like, you know, a wild West type situation. And so, you know, I think, I think that what, you know, a lot of organizations have realized is that they need to have basically processes and protocols to break their processes and protocols. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because a great point. if you're out there in the market right now trying to buy, you know, masks and you want, you know, net 90 payment terms from your, from your supplier, like you might as well not even have that conversation. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. you know, people are paying up, governments are paying up front millions for millions and millions of masks and buying them up front for weeks to come. And so, uh, and accepting that some of them may not show up or might be counterfeit or whatever. And that's just, I mean, it does, regardless of whether that's right or wrong, it's just, it's just the nature of the game. Sure. And so, um, you know, the same way that if you're a, you know, if you make a commodity product, right. If you're in agriculture, you know, it, it, it doesn't really matter whether, you know, you, if you like or don't like where the price of the product is, it's just, that's where it is. Sure. No, it's, it's fascinating stuff and kudos to you and your team for pulling that together quick. That's going to be a, an amazing story to tell as you're looking back 20, 30 years from now, no doubt about it. Um, one more question before we kind of go into our uh, rapid fire questions here at the end. Drew, as you, you know, you finished your first decade now of your, of your professional career and we're at all of us, you know, in a certain sense, you're at this hinge point uh, coming out of the COVID crisis. What, if you're sitting here in 2030, looking back on this next, next decade for you professionally, what, what will you hope uh, will be the, the main um, pillars of your story of success in the next, next coming 10 years? What's, what's going to make the next 10 years for you successful? I think the next phase is really about uh, being able to really you know, de- become better at developing, um, you know, organizational structure and, and management and, um, you know, development of, of talent. And that's something I really, really respect in my mentors and in people I look, look up to is that, you know, they, the people around them say, you know, this person's um, made everyone else better. And this person has, um, you know, helped me grow or, or whatever, you know, and I, I, it's something I really respect and my business partners, something I respect to my mentors. And I think it's, it's, you know, it's something that, um, you know, that's, that's my big goal kind of over the next decade is to really develop that. Give that gift of mentorship back. That's been so important to you the last 10 years to be able to, to find people to, to mentor going down the pipeline. That's great. Um, well, Drew, let's, let's finish it up here with just some quick questions. Uh, I think you hit on this during our conversation about luck and hard work, but i Knowing you, uh, you've put a lot of a lot of hard work in it too. But if you were to attribute um, your success, uh, one part to luck, one part to hard work, how would you how would you distribute that? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a hard one. I mean, I think 
I think the reality is just given that I think, I think luck is a huge piece of it. And, but I think luck means different things. I mean, I think I grew, I think a lot of the reasons why I work hard and, and have been able to embrace opportunity is because of the luck that I had and where I grew up and the parents I had, the friends I had growing up. Mm-hmm. And you know, that it's not like I, it's not like I really had much to do with that, obviously. Um, well, what I've always been, I've also been fortunate to maybe be, you know, I, I when opportunity present, presents itself, I've always been in a place in my life too, where I've been able to seize on it. Sure. Um, and that's, and that's another, you know, type of luck where, um, you know, I, I didn't have all that much to lose. So I'd say it's, you know, it's definitely a fair amount of luck. And then it's about when you jump on an opportunity, just sprinting on it. Right. Um, if you had a chance to, uh, spend a few years on a profession other than the one you're currently in, what would it be? Well, the one that I would love to, to attempt, but would, it would never end up being successful would be uh, professional golf. <laughs> but, uh, uh that more frustrating most... than that. Trust me. What's your low round at Finkbine? You got a, you got a low, low number. My low at Finkbine in a tournament, I think is this, I think I won districts of the 70, but I still have the West high nice. low record of all time. What's that? 61. Holy cow. At Finkbine yeah, or somewhere else? Yeah. No, it was at Airport National. <laughs> classic. That's a classic corridor golf course right there. But it's still a record. Airport National. So did you grow up playing Finkbine or was that your, oh, yeah. your main home track or were you like a high point? Or? I basically grew up on Finkbine. Yeah, it was okay. about a five-minute bike ride from my house if you knew how to get through the uh, Finkbine parking lot there and uh, get through that gate, which, which I obviously did. Not to, not to get too philosophical here, but like, what, what has golf taught you about life or about business? So I think I'll, I'll answer in two ways. The philosophical answer is I think basically it really teaches you to both be like dramatically in the moment while also you're, you're thinking, you know, holes and uh, shots ahead. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a really good way to get like sort of grounded in risk reward and, yeah, it's a great risk reward. Yeah, it really is for sure. Um, and how you how you keep a mentality around that when you also have to you know perform the moment. From a more practical perspective, I mean, and I didn't realize this till later, but you know, golf is this unbelievable thing to have as a young person because it's like a it's like the first time I was taken seriously by adults, and <laughs> I spent all this time hanging out with all these adults, you know, hearing their stories, talking, you know, hearing about the business you know, hearing whatever, all their inappropriate jokes and stuff. And, uh, you know, like at 14, 15, 16, because I was, you know, you know, a good golfer. And so they would include me in those things and get invited to play in tournaments and get taken by, you know, folks, you know, parents. And so you, you learn how to, you kind of learn how to be around adults and how to, um, you know, how to, you know, you mature in that way. It's a, it's a, it's a very rare place where you could have a social relationship with an adult as a, as a, you know, a kid in high school. And yeah. I think that was actually really big. And then it translates later on in the business world where, you know, you, you'll get brought along to things, um, mm-hmm. you know, just simply because of that. And I, I, that's practically what I think the most valuable. Sure. That's a, it's a, it's a great sport. I've enjoyed it. Lifetime I was trying to get my boys and, and daughters playing it now too, but they, uh, Oh yeah. They're stuck on other sports right now, but it's it's a great great lifetime sport, no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, how about a business leaders or someone that you have really loved? I mean, you've been around so many great startup, you know, entrepreneurs and 
folks have created amazing businesses. Is there one that stands out to you that uh, as a favorite? And it's, there's there's really so many. Um, the two that were my kind of childhood, which is funny, but my my childhood, um, you know, I, I kind of heroes uh, on the investing side were Henry Kravis and George Roberts, the founders of KKR, um, and have been. And I went to Claremont McKenna. One of the reasons I knew that college because it's a tiny little college in L, in uh, outside LA was because they had both gone there, um, you know, before they built KKR and. Um, you know, we've been really fortunate to, you know, to do business with them now. And, um, and I still think what they've built from an organizational perspective in private equity, regardless of, I think the investing, which their track record is amazing, but just the organization they've built is just unbelievably impressive. And on the entrepreneur side, another person that I think, you know, from a sort of a business philosophy and ethics perspective um, is Ken Lingone. One of the founders of Home Depot, uh, who, mm-hmm. who also lucky lucky to get to spend time with, but you know he, he built this unbelievable business, uh, and a lot of it was built on the idea of individual ownership in his managers and people, where they owned equity in what they were doing. He's created like hundreds of millionaires from people who you know were just you know managing his, his uh, their their stores and. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really powerful message. It also represents, I think it, you know, it represents the best of business um, and the best of you know capitalism. And so those are two that stick out. But there's 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 dozens. Sure, that's great. Uh, how about non-business related? Is there a podcast or TV show that you're watching at the moment? Yeah, I listen to tons of podcasts. The one that I like the most that's maybe non-business related is um, Conversations with Tyler with Tyler. Uh, Cowan, who runs the um, Mercatus Institute, he's just okay. an unbelievably, uh, I think, just contrarian thinker, and not contrarian in the way where it's just well, you know, you know, everyone's wrong, but just he's an independent thinker. He gets really interesting people on some that are very famous and some that are, you know, you would never have heard of. Um, and I think he's just an incredible. And then he just his interview style, if you've ever heard it, is just it's very interesting and I tend to like it. Okay. I'll have to check it out. Uh, do you have a favorite motivational quote? <laughs> favorite motivational quote. Anything, anything that comes to mind, any old golf, golf quotes, something you had up taped in, the, in your golf bag or something. Um, you know, I, 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 here's, here's a motivational quote that I actually heard the other day on TV. Uh, and I actually thought it was great. Um, and it was basically that, Amateurs talk about strategy. Professionals talk about logistics. Um, and it was a, it, it was a fitting one. I think it was General Mattis who said it on, on you know, TV the other night. Um, well, how to, right? How do you do it, Matt? Exactly. Yep. I just thought it was perfect for, um, you know, a lot of things I've seen in, in both the startup world, but then also, you know, this sort of current project, uh, which is directly logistics. So I've, that's, been my motivating, uh, that's been my motivating quote uh, for the last few weeks. That's good. Um, and then the last couple here, if you had 30 extra minutes in a day, what would you do with it? So what I would like to say I'd do with it was, uh, you know, like read like an actual physical book. Um, but I probably would sleep. <laughs> That's good. We all, we all need more sleep, especially these days. Uh, and then just final question in one sentence, how would you define success? Success is, is building a 
a group of people who are fulfilled, um, you know, for decades together, both through the mission they're serving um, and the and the the common bonds uh, that that they have with the other people doing it. Whether that's a whether that's a family, whether that's a group of friends, whether that's a business. But I, I but I view success very much as you know, in the world. You, there's some people that will come up with crazy inventions that will benefit all of us. And that's amazing. That's probably not who I'm going to be. What I want to do is help bring, you know, people together and give them uh, a goal and continue to iterate that goal in a way that it fulfills them throughout their life. Um, and that's, that's how I view business, but also how I view friendship and family. That's great. That's a, that's an amazing answer. Well, hey, man, I really appreciate the, you taking the time, especially right now in the middle of everything. And um, keep, keep doing Iowa City and Iowa proud. Um, 100%. Look, look us up next time you're, you're back around this area. You'll grab another beer. But um, best, of, best, of, best of luck with everything. And thank you so much for taking the time. Hey, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks, man. This episode was produced by Joe Coffey of Coffee Grande Studios. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at CB Journal.